Welcome to Season 2 Purdue University College of Sciences Superheroes of Science Podcast. I'm Stephen. And I'm Sarah. We will be discussing anything and everything related to science. If you have a science question, tweet it to us at Purdue SOS, and we will try and find someone to answer it for you. All right, well, welcome to Superheroes of Science. We're here today with Angeline Lyon, Professor of Biochemistry at Purdue University. Welcome, Angeline. Oh, thank you very much. I'm excited to be part of this. Great. It's nice to talk to people not in my family. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still getting used to this setup. I know usually these are done in person, so it's interesting Mm -hmm. to see uh, the different screens popping up. so your research, your group looks at um, enzymes for healthy cardiovascular systems. Is that sort of? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so they're involved, we work on uh, a class of enzymes called phospholipase Cs, and they're involved in regulating how much calcium is in your cell. So as you can imagine, there's all sorts of times and places you would want calcium in your cell, like any muscle contraction has a calcium component to it. Um, and but that gets really complicated very quickly. So we focus on just what's happening in the cardiovascular system. Okay. And then what all- Contraction has calcium in it? Pardon? A muscle contraction has calcium in it, like it requires- So so calcium oscillations drive, my my dog is participating now, sorry. Um, (laughs) Calcium oscillations drive a lot of contractions and nerve impulses. And so cells have to have a way to store calcium and then release it and move it back and forth across different membranes, both within the cell, like between organelles, and then between the blood vessels and you know, the, or across plasma membranes. And the enzymes that we work on are the ones that trigger calcium release from inside the cell. And so in the cardiovascular system, where this has been really well studied, you have these calcium oscillations. And the, they help drive your normal heart rate. They help control the maximum contractility. So your heart um, controls how efficiently your heart beats. So you displace you know, the biggest volume of blood every time your heart beats. So processes like that. And so if that uh, calcium signaling or related events go awry, it can cause arrhythmias. It can cause cardiac hypertrophy. Um, so where your heart gets bigger and bigger to do the same amount of work. And then um, in the really severe cases, it leads to heart failure. Oh, wow. Wow. I just did not think of a chemistry person studying things to do with the heart. That threw me off at first. Yes. It's it's very basic biochemistry. So it's, we don't, we, I, we don't work on any, you know, actual hearts or anything like that. We try to understand, you know, how the proteins are put together that, help regulate this? You know, how do they get turned off and turned on in the cell? Um, how do they actually catalyze the, these lipid hydrolysis reactions that make this calcium release possible? Um, but yes, it's not something that most people typically associate with a, a chemistry department. We, we don't have anything exciting that is going to blow up or anything like that. <laughs> the most exciting thing we get to play with is liquid nitrogen. Oh. <laughs> wow, gosh. So, um, what all, I guess I'm, I'm thinking for the students, like, so what all is involved in the cardiovascular system? So we take it from a very basic perspective. And you, as you dive into more and more of the physiology, like it just gets massively complicated and, and sort of mind blowing that it works at all, let alone that it works as well as it does in, in most people most of the time. Um, so we work mostly on, on purified proteins. So 
you know, you how do you make these really complicated human proteins without using any humans? Or so we use a lot of insect cells. Um, they're a good way to make complicated proteins on a very large scale. And then basically separating the proteins we want from everything else inside those cells and then sort of taking a very nuts and bolts approach to them. So, okay, we have maybe two pieces of the protein that come together and that looks like it might be important. Um, so how can we test that? And we usually test it in vitro by breaking it. Um, so we do lots of, of mutagenesis, seeing how, you know, does this salt bridge between these two parts of the protein, you know, is it really important for regulation? Does another protein bind and somehow break that? Um, so a lot of our experiments are focused on, on the mechanics of how the proteins work by themselves, when we put in other proteins, when we put in cell membranes or cell membrane mimics. Um, and then we, you can build out from there. So, you know, a very simple in vitro model, you, then you can move it into cells. And it's like, okay, well, I, I've infected the cell with all the different pieces I want to study, and I can monitor the output of the pathway. And as you start to figure that level of complexity out, then you can move into uh, like a cardiomyocyte assay and then actually look at how the mutations that you found in a test tube can control things like calcium release and uh, how the muscle cell will actually contract, you know, in a microscope or in another type of experiment. So that's kind of our long-term game plan. Nice. When you're looking at those and, and looking at those interactions and, you know, putting things in the cells, what sorts of instruments do you use to study those? So I joke that we are a methods agnostic lab and um, we will figure out whatever techniques we need to, uh, to try and understand how these proteins behave. Um, I was trained as a structural biologist though. So I come at things from a, if I can figure out what it looks like, then I can start to figure out how it works. Um, so we do x-ray crystallography, we do um, electron microscopy, and so those are both ways that you can get basically atomic snapshots of what your protein looks like. And they both have pros and cons, but the advantage when it all works right um, is that you can see, you know, into the, where the amino acids actually are in these proteins, uh, which is just fascinating that you can take a protein from a cell and then see all of the atoms that made up that protein. Like, it's amazing that that actually works. Uh, and then we do lots of, we're starting to do microscopy. So label the cell with, or label our proteins in a cell with like green fluorescent protein or something like that. Um, and then we can watch how those proteins move in the cell or a cell lysate. We can look at how they interact with membranes, how they interact with other proteins. Um, and so that's been a new direction in the lab. And then we do lots of, of you know, activity assays. So if we mutate a part of the protein, does that change its activity in, in a test tube and then in a cell and long-term in an actual heart? Wow. So when you say mutate part of a protein, um, what processes are you using to cause something like this to happen? We do a lot of molecular biology. So uh, lots of uh, PCR. So we can... Uh, you can design your primers to just change one or a few amino acids. And we usually like to change the amino acids uh, that we're interested in into something just totally opposite of, of what it would be in the wild type protein. So like if your normal protein has a basic residue in that position, um, you know, if you flip the charge and put something acidic there, that's one really good way to potentially disrupt the protein in that one spot, but not necessarily break it permanently <laughs> or irreversibly such that the cell can't make it anymore. Um, so lots of PCR, lots of um, cell culture, both bacterial and insect and mammalian cell culture. Um, and then sort of the biochemistry comes in with some of the other techniques. So like the structural biology and, and enzymatic assays and measuring 
protein unfolding, things like that. Wow. So we do, we do a little bit of everything, but it's a lot of fun. Yeah. One has the chance to be bored. <laughs> <laughs> now, how many people and what type of other scientists will you collaborate in what you're doing? What I, one thing that I really like is, I mean, it is like it, you're a biochemist, but I'm thinking chemist working on the stuff that has to do with the heart. That, what? That, that doesn't fit the stereotype. Um, so, and that's what we love to convey to students also is that there, there isn't a, you're just doing this one little thing in your little world, you're, you're collaborating. Mm -hmm. And so what type of other scientists would be, would be, you would, you often collaborate with and why? That's a, a really interesting question. And part of it is where you just find areas of overlap. Uh, so. So one obvious collaboration is, you know, we don't do a lot of animal work in our lab. We don't do any animal work in our lab. And we really are just learning how to work with mammalian cells. And cardiomyocytes are notoriously tricky to isolate and to keep happy long enough to do some of these more complicated, um, you know, calcium flux experiments or looking at, you know, how the cells actually beat. Um, and so rather than, you know, build up all that expertise in your own lab, which can be really expensive and just incredibly time consuming, we collaborate with people um, at medical schools who, you know, do this routinely. Um, so we can tell them interesting biochemical things we find, and then um, we can help translate that into assays that they're experts in. And so the long-term goal is to find um, interesting mutations or interesting interactions that we can change at the DNA level and then put into um, basically rat or mouse models of heart disease. And so we collaborate with people who, who do more uh, in, vitro, or in vivo and animal work. Um, and so that's sort of one side of our collaborations. The other side is where we have a question or a tool and we can help someone else answer one of their research questions. So as uh, having uh, expertise in like, like x-ray crystallography, that's really useful for a lot of people who are trying to, for example, optimize biological sensors. So one really big area is coming up with these fluorescent genetically encoded sensors where you could recognize a particular small molecule that the cell makes, and then you could measure how much it makes or where it's being produced um, instead of having to basically dissect the whole organism and take the cell all apart and hope you don't perturb anything. So one way that you can rationally design that is if you can figure out what it looks like and then how it binds that particular molecule, you can then go back and sort of reiteratively design a better sensor. And so we one of the labs we collaborate with, we help them crystallize their proteins and get high resolution structure so that they can see exactly what amino acid is binding which atom in their substrate. And then they can come up with ways to build in new interactions. And so that might be a little bit more kind of a, from a, stereotypical chemistry perspective, because you can build in like, okay, well, there's a negative charge here in this molecule that we want to recognize. So if we change this amino acid across from it to something that is positively charged, we could build in an electrostatic interaction, or we could build in a, a, pro, a hydrogen bond. And so that is where we perhaps fit more, uh, more easily under the, the general chemistry umbrella. Okay. Wow. So on, I realize right now nothing is normal. <laughs> There's no such thing as a normal day currently with what's happening around us. But uh, take me back six months ago. What would yeah. 
what would be a normal, I don't know if I want to ask day or week, because I'm guessing uh, it, those are two big different things, but what type of things would a biochemist that's researches, what types of things would you have to do mm-hmm. as a, I want to say day to day, but I'm sure it's yours. More- it's a little longer term usually than that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so it depends a little bit on the project. Um, all of my, uh, all the graduate students and postdocs and, and people I have in my lab, one of the first things everybody learns is how to work with cells and uh, express proteins and purify them. So unlike a lot of labs, we can't just buy our reagents off the shelf. We have to trick the cell into making them for us. And so if you, you can't get the cell to make your reagents, you're in a lot of trouble. Um, so that's probably the biggest, most time consuming process. Um, you know, for a brand new protein, if we have to express it and purify it from insect cells, that takes about a month from start to finish. And then you can get the protein in hand and then you can start doing other experiments. So for structural biology, it can, it can range from you know, days to years <laughs> uh, to go from you know, a, a purified protein to like a crystal structure or uh, a, an envelope or something like that, like a rough shape information. Um, Assays are usually a little bit more high throughput. So if you're doing in vitro assays, you can crank through a couple in a day um, if once you have everything you know, optimized. So I'm glossing over all that. Uh, and, then, <laughs> and then the cell-based assays, you know, this is usually about a week because we have to do things like label the cells and then infect them with the proteins we want. Um, so most of the experiments we do are, there's not a lot of instant gratification, I would say. But you know, we play the long game. That's really interesting to think about that. I, I like what you said that you can't just buy it off of the shelf that you have so a lot of planning. Yeah, a lot of planning to, you know, okay, we need to make sure we have a supply of this to be able to run the assay and then and then we're going to be able to as long now. Is there like quality control that you'll do with that when you're making what you need to make sure that it is it's doing what you want. Oh, absolutely. So, uh, you know, as as you gain more experience you can usually get a feel as like okay these cells are looking old they don't look and it's it's a lot of it is sort of nebulous things like they don't look healthy or they look sad or angry or something um then you know that okay we need to get a new batch of cells or or thaw a new a group Um, we usually use the most wild type proteins we we can purify as our gold standards Um, so you know something that we haven't modified or haven't modified much um, and if that behaves reproducibly, then that makes us feel more confident about you know, changing amino acids or removing pieces or adding pieces down the line. Um, but everything we we work with usually gets characterized by a few different assays, um, just to make sure that we haven't done anything totally catastrophic to it that we can tell. Yeah. yeah. Or if it is catastrophic, at least that it's uh, the cell can make it, and that's usually the biggest roadblock. Is sometimes you can mute, make you know you just change one amino acid. And then um, that protein is no longer made. And so that you just never know. Yeah. The only way to know is to do the experiment. And that is, it's, it's time intensive, but it's really satisfying. That's really great. Now, How many people are, are working with you in your group? So I have uh, six grad students right now, a postdoc, and then a lab manager. And they are there day to day. And then we have. Our number of undergraduates is, is really dropping after the semester. Half of them are graduating, which is good and bad, bad for us, great for them. Um, so we had nine this spring. 
Um, and then we're dropping down to four this fall. So we are recruiting. Wow. <laughs> and the undergrads are typically there probably three to nine hours a week on average. So when you have nine and you're getting between three and nine hours a week and then you drop down to four, I can see the. Yes. Yes. <laughs> that, we're all a little worried about what's going to happen. Uh, so, and, and, you know, they don't just do things like wash dishes and things like that. You know, they, we all have come to count on them to run different experiments and, and help with just kind of keeping the lab up and running on the day-to-day -day basis. Um, so it's very weird to have them not be there anymore. Yeah. So two questions, I guess. Um, I'll stick with, I want to go back and ask another question, but uh, with the undergrad thing first, uh, how do, how does someone who's just, you know, going into college and it has, a little more general interests, undergrad would, how do they get connected with the lab like yours to be able to have that amazing opportunity? So a lot of it is just taking a look online. So I think, I don't know of any lab on campus that typically would not take an undergraduate researcher, you know, provided they have like space to put them and someone to work with them. Um, but most of the students who've joined my lab have either contacted me directly by email, you know, just looking online at different research opportunities um, we also, I try to hype the, um, my more junior colleagues. I'll talk about them um, when I teach undergraduate classes, like, hey, this person just joined and they're doing really cool stuff. If you're interested in, in getting some research experience, talk to this person. Um, and then another great resource is actually my graduate students because most of them are TAs. So they'll make announcements in class like, hey, we're recruiting an undergraduate who, you know, if you're interested in learning more about biochemistry or, or something like that, you know, come and talk to me or email my advisor. And so that's how most people end up in our lab. And then I, do, I, I like to do a lot of the, um, like, undergraduate research outreach things. So there's a lot of undergrad societies on campus um, that were, like, women in science, for example. Mm -hmm. And that's a good way to bring in undergraduates who are interested in science but might not necessarily know how to connect to a professor. And then I think there's also just... People are like, they think we're, um, they're hesitant to email or contact us. It's like, we're really not that weird. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it doesn't have to be a big formal thing and you don't need any special training. You, you know, as long as you're interested and willing to give it a shot for a semester, that's awesome. That's all we're asking for. We hope you get hooked after that and, you know, want to stay with us forever. Uh, but we understand that you know, the best way to figure out if you love something is to try it. That's great. A lot. And the other question I wanted to go back to was uh, sometimes the terminology we need to define just a little bit more. Oh, yeah, yeah. We're used to using our uh, our lingo that we understand quite well. When yes. We but uh, like one thing that stuck out a lot that we, we said quite a few times was mm -hmm. the assay. Oh, yes, yes. Could, what, could you, would you um, explain what this is so that everyone knows? Yeah. So th that's a really good question. Uh, so basically it's just, is there something that we can measure, like some sort of output from a purified protein that would give us some insight into you know, how well it's catalyzing a reaction or is there some property that we could monitor over time? Like how, how stable is it if we heat it up? Um, and we can use that information and compare proteins with mutations to proteins without mutations and see, you know, are they the same? Are they different? Does making a mutation make it more stable or less stable, more active or less active? 
And so assay is just sort of a catch-all term for doing some sort of, of output monitoring from your, your favorite cell or your favorite protein or your favorite reaction. So it's like a test of a variable yeah. chosen to put it in middle school science terms? Yes. Yes, that's a very good description of it. Perfect. Cool. Right? We've just said that that word several times as I started at first. I didn't, you know, it's just part of the conversations. But oh, yeah, no, I'm glad you asked. Wait a minute. It, wait a minute. Is everyone going to know what we're talking about here? Yes. Yeah. yeah. And That's so it's great. easy for us to get caught up in our lingo when we start talking about oh, like this. Yeah, absolutely. That gets, it's, it's really hard. And, and you're so used to speaking in that jargon that you don't even realize you do it half the time. Right. And, uh, yeah. Speaking of uh, how we're using, now when you say the word protein, your mm -hmm. proteins, the first thing that comes to mind is, uh, well, I, my breakfast had 20 you know, grams of protein in it. How yes. What you're working with different than what I'm, if I'm tracking my calories and macros, how are they different? So they're not. Uh, the only difference is that we are working with just one particular, one very specific protein that we've tried to isolate from everything else. Uh, but in terms of what it's made of and how it's made, it's the same as the proteins that you eat. So we do a lot of, some of our experiments are basically cooking. Um, so, you know, when you cook an egg, when, you, when you're making eggs, right, you crack it and it's clear. And then as it cooks, it turns white and opaque and all of that. That's just, that's a thermal denaturation experiment. You're unfolding your proteins as they unfold, they start to collapse and aggregate. And then you go from this kind of gelatinous, clear, mushy stuff to this solid, well-defined structure. Um, so you've already done a, a denaturation assay in your kitchen all the time. Wow. Shake it up really hard. Like if you're, if you're making a meringue and you beat egg whites until they get really big and fluffy. Um, you've denatured it with with force and air. So proteins bubble when you shake them up and meringues and foams and things like that. It's a bunch of denatured protein. We try not to do that in the lab, but you know, sometimes it, it's inevitable. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, it's really foamy. It's like, oh no, that's not good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The uh, kitchen science gone wrong. <laughs> yes, yes. You can you can do whatever you want to your proteins at home, but I, I would like you to be a little more gentle if, if you're going to work with them in the lab. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you had some good advice for undergraduate students um, looking online and then just emailing or talking yeah. to their TAs or something to get, to, um, get involved with research as an undergraduate. But for students in high school that maybe aren't quite for sure, maybe they're interested in science, but they don't really know. Do you have any advice oh, for yeah. them? They can do the same thing. Um, so we actually have had um, four high school students come and work in the lab over the summer. Um, so they're because you're a minor, you're uh, more limited on what you can do. Um, but you still get to shadow. You'll learn how to pipette. You'll learn some basic molecular biology and biochemistry. Uh, but one of those uh, high school students is now an undergrad researcher in our group. Oh, wow. And so okay. absolutely, if you like science and you want to try it out, it's not unheard of. It's not uncommon. I know Purdue's chemistry department, um, we already have forms prepared just for high school students who are interested in working in the lab for a week or a month. Uh, but same thing. 
take a look at the websites, see whose research looks interesting and just shoot off an email. That's great. I think that can be intimidating sometimes, but then hearing you talk about it, it sounds like, oh yeah. Oh, yeah, it, it, it's always a little nerve wracking to email someone that you don't know, but it's way better than making a phone call, I think. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and, and if you know, I think the other thing too is, is I think a lot of faculty have a reputation for being terrible at responding. Um, so if you have not heard back, you know, undergrad, graduate, high school student, if you haven't heard anything in like a week, just email us again. Our feelings are never hurt by follow up emails. Oh. A lot That's of good. I think we're all guilty of I, I thought I responded to that or I wrote the reply but forgot to send it. Oh, so, yeah. Reminders are good. No one will be upset. excellent advice. Yeah. <laughs> oh, definitely very good advice because it's you just get overwhelmed in your daily thing and something out of the ordinary is easy to push aside until you've forgotten to reply. Right, right. And so, and usually seeing the second email is like, oh yeah, yeah, I meant to write that. And I'm, I'm so sorry I forgot, but you know, here's what you need to know, or yes, we're taking students and this is what you would need to do. So don't be shy. Perfect. Perfect. Did, were you going to say something else, Sarah? Nope. Uh, okay. Well, there's a lie. I thought I'd cut you off for a second there. I'm like, oops. Sorry. No, I got it. <laughs> so, um, it, you, chemistry and biology. Yes. But your background was biology more than chemistry? So it's technically it's biochemistry. So I, when I was applying for jobs, I fit equally well in both kind of a, a chemistry, biochemistry setting and then a biology setting. And so that's how I ended up in both places at Purdue. <laughs> um, I, can, I can speak both languages. And so it made sense to, to, basically put me at that interface. And it's been really useful for sort of strengthening the biochemistry ties between our department uh, or between chemistry and biological sciences, sort of bringing everybody on the same page in terms of resources and you know, just being able to kind of move back and forth between them has been a lot of fun. Hey, so that's a good point. Oh, go ahead, sir. I was just say that's a good point that um, you know, that you kind of have your, your foot in both doors. So it's, it's, I could see where communication, that would be really helpful for communication between them. Well, and everyone, everyone's busy and, you know, chemistry and biology are both really big departments. And so it's, it's easy to, to forget that, you know, someone on, you know, 15 minutes away from Brown over in Hopmeyer is, might have exactly the reagent you need or you know, the expertise yeah. to answer the question. And you just don't think about it because you don't know the people in that department. So it's, it's nice to be a resource in that capacity. So I, I'm curious to ask, when you left high school and went into college, did you think you would be studying something like this? No, 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 no. I was pre-med like most other biochemists. <laughs> it didn't last for that long. I, I fell in love with organic chemistry, honestly, and uh, I thought it was just so cool. And you know, it's how cells make things happen. And then it sort of merged farther and farther into the, the biology side of things. And so biochemistry has been kind of a happy marriage of the two. But no, I, I never thought I would be a scientist. It's rare that someone says yes to that question. I know one person who claims he always wanted to be a scientist, but I think he's lying. <laughs> <laughs> I love the question. I love the answer because it, it, you don't know where this adventure of life is going to end up taking you. And oh, absolutely. Those opportunities and, and kids, that is, they're in college. So I have people, I, I have a daughter who is in high school. Mm -hmm. 
just yesterday someone said, oh, well, well what's, what's she planning on doing? And mm -hmm. I don't know, and I'm afraid to ask her because she gets mad when I do. <laughs> but it's like I tell her, I'm like, you don't have to know yet. Just go, no. go find something you're interested in and start messing with it and checking it out. And mm -hmm. often kids get pressured into people, and so they feel like, oh, I have to know what I'm going to do the rest of my life right now. Yes. And I'm like, go do something here. Even my son, who's in college. <laughs> Someone had the audacity to ring the doorbell. Sorry. No, so I think every senior in my lab has had that existential crisis. Like in their last year, it's like, I'm supposed to know what I would need to do for the rest of my life. I'm. 23 i don't know what to do and it's like no 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 nobody knows we just fake it um and so what my my parents told me is you know just keep you know if you're enjoying something just keep doing it and doing it until it's fun and if it stops being fun then you know that you need to rethink it or try something a little bit different but yeah i i agree with you that there's a that seems like there's a lot of pressure to have it all figured out and to have a plan and if you deviate from that plan it's bad or wrong and no i, I don't know anyone who, who ended up in as a you know a, a research scientist at a university who that was their master plan from day one i don't i haven't yet to meet one either <laughs> but it's right. cool hearing the adventures that you guys go through and hearing about the research you're doing and we really appreciate you taking time to sit down and let us interview you and chat with you about the things you're doing and sharing it with the students. Thank oh, well, thank you for the opportunity. This has been a lot of fun. And it's, it's nice to see Sarah again. And nice to meet you, Stephen. Yeah. It is certainly a pleasure. <laughs> thank you for listening to our podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. An outstanding on review. iTunes or your preferred podcast player. Tweet us your science questions. At Purdue SOS. Until next time, be super. And remember, you are someone's hero. Boiler up! Hammer down.